I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about Elon Musk's Twitter feed and Tesla becoming the most valuable car maker in the world, Lululemon's move into the connected fitness industry and why Uber buying Postmates was a bad idea. So guys, by my calculations, this week marks the 18th week we've been all working from home. Um, before we start today's episode of Stock Club, I actually wanted to ask you guys if there's anything that you used to do before the COVID-19 lockdown that you don't think you'll ever return to doing even when you can. So has, has the recent lockdown changed your opinion on something you used to regularly that you, you won't go back to, Emmett? That's a good question. Um pass i mean i'm looking forward to getting back to most things but i do believe now that my place of work is my home and that i will go into my wall street hq in the middle of dublin city for meetings and for events and for team meetings but for me i think my mind shift my mindset has shifted to to my home office is now my primary place of work where it was the opposite uh before coronavirus yeah, I think that's probably the most common one for most people, uh, the kind of the benefits of working from home. Rory, what about you? Is there anything you don't ever envisage doing again? I don't know about not ever envisioning doing something again, but I hope at the end of this that lessons have been learned and it's not just a case of back to normal. Like, um, for example, I think like I'm cooking an awful lot more at home, not ordering as much takeout, uh, getting up earlier in the morning to kind of have some time in the morning to do exercise and things like that to kind of prep myself for the day whereas beforehand the commute was kind of like you know you get up just in time to get to make it to the office that kind of way yeah so i'm not sure about things i'm never going to do again but i i think i've definitely uh had some kind of positive life-changing um habits built in over the last couple of months that i i, I hope i can maintain when things go back to whatever form of normality they go back to Definitely. Um, so let's start off today then um, talking about kind of a, a topic that used to be the, the most common topic we talked about in this podcast. So there was a time when the Stock Club podcast was almost called Elon Musk Show because every week for, I'd say, a run of three months, all we could do was talk about the latest thing that the Tesla CEO had done. Uh, he's been quite recently, but over the past few weeks, Musk has started hitting Twitter again. And more worryingly for investors, perhaps, started baiting the SEC, his longstanding enemy, it seems. Um, after Tesla reported on a much better than expected quarter last week in terms of deliveries, Musk announced on Twitter that he was going to start selling red satin shorts on the company website, that he would send some to 
and I quote the Short Seller Enrichment Commission, what he seems to call SEC, uh, to help him through these difficult times. Um, predictably, then the shorts went up for sale on the Tesla website for $69. Um, some people will probably get that if they follow Musk on Twitter. And then on Sunday, uh, the shorts sold out within a few minutes. Um, Rory, as I mentioned already, you know this this podcast used to centre around mainly what Elon Musk has done, and kind of we all used to bury our face and our hands over it. Should investors be worried that he's kind of carrying on like this again, um, especially after all the trouble he got in with over the um, infamous 420 tweet? Yeah, I don't know whether it was that he kind of died it down a little bit on Twitter, or whether we all just kind of got bored of him. You know, there was a time when his outlandish behaviour on Twitter was something that everyone kind of dropped their mouths at, being like, "Oh my God, I can't believe it." a billion dollar company CEO is talking like this on Twitter and now it's just you know par for course. Um, it was just over a month ago that he said he would be leaving Twitter for a while. That <laughs> lasted all of two days. Uh, I think we've all done that though in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough but <laughs> like, he didn't even last two days. That was what yeah. was. So we were all rejoicing on the company Slack channel being like thank god maybe he's gonna keep away from Twitter for a little while. Someone once joked that there must be like a multi-billion dollar job opportunity for someone to just keep him away from Twitter. Yeah. Um, the te Tesla shareholders would happily pay that person's wages if they can if they could <laughs> successfully do it. Um, you know, for I mean, for a while he after the when he said he was going to leave Twitter and then he didn't. In his defense, he spent the vast majority of the next few weeks discussing the successes of the SpaceX NASA launch, which he and everyone else involved, you know, rightly should be proud of. But more recently, as you say, he's just gone back to old habits. He called Jeff Bezos a copycat using a little cat emoji because Amazon bought a electric truck company. Um, he repeatedly taunted the SEC. Um, yeah. The whole short seller enrichment commission, not not your best joke, Elon, I have to say. That was kind of uh, that, that was kind of set up for you. He's endorsed Kanye West for president. Um, and of course he's uh, begun selling the Tesla themed hot pants. Uh, I'm sure a huge amount of this stems from what have to be regarded as the insane stock gains that Tesla stock has seen over the last couple of months, you know, for to put things into context, for about five years, the stock was trading in a range of about $150 to about $350. It kind of zigzagged up and down on a roller coaster, depending on what their deliveries were like or what kind of promises Elon had made the previous month. Um, and then it had a kind of big surge at the end of last year, topping 600 for the first time. But since March, which is only just over three months ago, the stock's gone from $500 to $1,400. Wow. Uh, and like this is not a small company. This is a company with a market cap of now over $250 billion, the most valuable car company in the world by a long way. Um, you don't you typically see that kind of movement in a stock that size. Uh, you know, one Morgan Stanley analyst noted that over the last week, he was a, this guy had been quite bearish on Tesla, said over the last week, Tesla is adding to its valuation roughly the entire market of Ford on a daily basis. Um, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's incredible. And also, something's wrong there. You can't, yeah. that, that's not supposed to happen. Um, in the news that happened that, you know, spurred this, or whether this was the news that spurred it or not, is that the company did surpass some estimates for its vehicle deliveries in Q2, delivered about 90,000 cars versus, you know, 80,000 was the estimate. But of course, that's the consensus estimate. And as we know, with Tesla, the consensus differs widely from analyst to analyst. You've got some analysts who think the company's worth absolutely nothing and 
uh, Catherine Wood over at ARC Invest who thinks it's worth the trillions. So the consensus estimate doesn't really tell you much. Um, production was down for the quarter about 20%, but of course its main factory in Fremont was shut down for much of the quarter. And you know, it's, it'd be nice to be able to talk about Tesla as a car company, but unfortunately Musk just always steals the show. He's, he's a guy that clearly doesn't think rules apply to him, and I suppose that's why a lot of people like him. You know, you, you see a guy who started a rocket company and a car company and a solar energy company in his you know, early years, and you think, of course, he doesn't think the rules apply to him. If he, if he thought the rules applied to him, he wouldn't be doing that kind of thing. Um, there was a good interview, actually, our, our friend um, Morgan Hessel did a great interview with Bethany McLean recently, who was the journalist who exposed Enron and wrote the book uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room. So she, she wrote a Vanity Fair piece about Musk uh, late last year. And she used the line that it's 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 um, the line between visionary and fraudster is often a lot closer than we would like to admit. And <laughs> you know, there's there's definitely an element of that with Elon. You know, he's, as much as we yeah. we look at him and think that this guy's a you know the Edison of our generation or the the Nikola Tesla, I suppose, of our generation, we more more apt. Um, he does he does walk a tightrope sometimes in, in what he does and, and how he behaves. And I suppose you have to wonder whether if he stopped that would that improve the stock performance or or not i actually think it wouldn't i think that's what a lot of shareholders look for in tesla and um, yeah. i do time to time just you know the constant being the victim does kind of tire on me but i suppose that's that's the way he behaves and that's how how um how he's you know, don't see him stopping anytime soon whether the sec gets involved or not just on that point you mentioned about Tesla and as, as you mentioned since March they've been on an incredible run and their market cap is now over $250 billion. Emmett, do you think such a massive market cap, you know, the most valuable automator maker in the world, do you think that's a, a, a title that Tesla deserves at this time when they're only delivering, you know, 90,000 cars a quarter? I do, is the quick answer. And the reason is because I think Tesla is being misunderstood as a car manufacturer. And the way I've envisaged the business for the last few years, certainly, is that it's a data company that does cars. And um, that when you think about where autonomous driving is going, it's actually mind-boggling, really, to think that when cars are all speaking to each other speaking to each other you know the tesla around the corner can tell the other tesla that there's a bunch of kids playing so there's a kind of a map of the streets available to all teslas on the road which will raise the level of safety so when all these cars are talking together as a mesh one of the biggest problems humankind has at the moment is is um is death on the road and death or automotive deaths and i think that they're they have such a charge in curing that global problem and many others i really do believe that they deserve uh to be valued more than the others you know how you actually value a data company an ai company with cars uh, that does cars, if you like, is another conversation. But I do believe that they deserve the price premium because I just don't know how the others can even catch up. Um, I know one of the grisly metrics of motoring is um, deaths per million miles. And uh, the last time I looked at this metric, which albeit was a year ago, uh, Tesla's death per million miles driven was considerably lower than other car manufacturers so yeah i think it's um i think it's a it's i think it's a business that i i still believe it's going to be the first trillion dollar 
quote unquote car, car company and and um and i think it's just a, a long-term buy and hold cool well i'm sure we'll be back talking to tesla and elon in in the next episode probably or if not the next episode the next few episodes let's move on to some other news then and there's been two acquisitions over the past two weeks that have really caught our eye one for good reasons and one maybe for not so good reasons let's start with the good one first though so lululemon one of the best performing stocks in the my wall street shortlist funnily enough um and the makers of very very expensive yoga pants recently bought a fitness startup company called mirror for 500 million dollars Mirror's product is both an actual mirror that you place in your room and a digital screen so users can see the reflection while simultaneously working out um, in a connected fitness class. Emmett, I'm going to come to you on this one. What do you make of Lululemon's move into the connected fitness industry like this? I think this particular manoeuvre was really smart. I think it was strategically sound and it got me quite excited about Lululemon all over again. And as you said, like, so Vancouver-based Lululemon has bought New York-based Mirror, which is a company less than two years old for $500 million. And as you said, it's, it's a, it's a, do you remember in Snow White, Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, where there was a kind of a nasty queen inside, inside the mirror? Well, um, that is effectively what the mirror is. And it's a digital screen that, as you rightfully explained, James, allows users to see the reflection while simultaneously watching their workout uh, with, with an instructor. And in fact, last year, the New York Times called it the most narcissistic exercise equipment ever, which I thought was quite entertaining. So let well, me just roll well, back a just, bit. Mere- just, to, just to jump in there, if you ever remember, like when yeah. we, back when we used to go to gyms, it was always the guys in front of the mirrors with the dumbbells, you know, checking themselves <laughs> out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at least it's in your own home. You don't have to endure watching <laughs> other people do. Um, yeah, the mirror retails at about uh, $1,500. And then you pay uh, around 40 bucks a month, 39 bucks a month for membership to access the classes. Its revenue run rate this year for 2020 is $100 million. Now, as you said, they've paid $500 million for this product. So it's at the moment still just a 5x on this year's revenue. Um, And when you look at it from Lululemon's perspective, who are, I think, well into a three-year expansion plan, and they had a goal of doubling their menswear and digital sales and quadrupling international sales by 2023, Lululemon has been invested in Mirror since last year, which is quite impressive considering the business was only founded in September 2018. And Lululemon's ambassadors are now running courses on the platform Okay. But you know, in the bigger picture, you know, we're in a world now that would prefer to stay at home for workouts or at least away from commutes and other people and other sharing facilities, you know, and above all the risk of picking up any type of virus from equipment that has been used by tens of sweaty people before you and breathing the same air. I mean, the, the business case for working out from home or at least away from the gym is there for all to see. And I'd wager that, like every listener in recent months, has considered and engaged in their exercise regimes in a whole new way, as Rory said at the top of the show. So one of the challenges for home workouts beyond the capital cost of equipment, which we all know is high, whether it's a Peloton or a Mirror um, and, and the subsequent subs- subscriptions, is that they take up space. You know, and like in my office here in my house, um, uh, there's a treadmill and there's a bike and it occupies, uh, you know, a footprint that I couldn't give up 
that if I, if I lived in an apartment or if I was renting yeah. a room in someone else's place. But the mirror has solved that problem. You know, it's wall mounted. And from what I can observe, or at least it's beside the wall, from what I can observe, it's aesthetic and it's easy on the eye. So Lululemon is planning to start to sell the mirror in its stores from Q4. And when you consider Peloton's market cap today of around $17 billion, uh, maybe $17.5 billion, I think $500 million to acquire Mirror by Lululemon was a very good deal. And I think, uh, again, considering that the business is only founded a year and a half to two ago, it was a great deal for the founders as well. A half a billion dollars is a pretty good outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Rory, I want to come to you because Emmett mentioned Peloton there and um, you've been a massive fan of Peloton kind of since it floated last year. Do you think that Peloton has kind of been a trailblazer in, in helping companies to realize that connected fitness is the next big thing? Well, what I think really happened was that, you know, connected fitness is not something new. It's been around for 20 years at least. I remember back in the day when I got what was called a Nike Plus at the time, which was a tiny little widget. Uh, around the size of a modern-day USB key that you stuck into your sneaker and you you ran around and a, a thing on your phone told you how far you'd run and how fast you'd run. And there was a yeah. little kind of, uh, whatchamacallit, there was a, a leadership between people in your area and all that kind of stuff. So connected fitness is nothing new, but what's happened over the last 10, 15 years in particular is that the infrastructure is now in place to make connected fitness really work for people. And that infrastructure includes everyone having broadband internet, for example, or even being able to get broadband speed style internet outside your home or everyone having a fitness tracker on them or everyone having an uh, an iphone in their pockets so what you've actually got now is that is a whole infrastructure built around the idea that connected fitness can work for everyone and what peloton simply did was leverage that and brought what is essentially the gym experience or the, not exactly the gym experience but the kind of soul cycle and um, boutique gym fitness class experience into someone's home which is great because an awful lot of people don't like going to those kind of fitness classes for whatever reason, whether it's a time-based thing, whether they just don't have the the, the time to get there and, and do it with, within the, the structures of the class schedule, or whether there's other reasons, you know, Planet Fitness made a huge amount of money by creating the judgment-free zone for people, because so, yeah. people don't necessarily, people aren't comfortable being in those kind of situations with people, with, with other people, they may feel kind of body conscious or they may just want to be able to do it in the, in, with some privacy. So uh, Peloton, I think, definitely like uh, were very good at, at seeing that and, and realizing that they could sell a high-end bike for people to do this in a digital space. And um, the mirror acquisition is so interesting because, like Emmett said, it, it, it is the Peloton, essentially, for people who don't have space for an exercise bike in their apartment. <laughs> um, and one of the things, I mean, when I first heard it, I thought it was a really good deal. The other side of me was thinking, why didn't Peloton buy them? You know, why yeah. would Peloton allow this acquisition to go through with, that, with such a small amount? Like half a billion is not a huge amount of money for a company in Peloton's position right now. And perhaps they have their own product in the pipeline. And that will be the real challenge, right? Because the platform is much more powerful than the hardware. If the, the hardware is, you know, any, anyone can replicate a piece of hardware, but creating an ecosystem like Peloton has already created is going to be very difficult for anyone to compete against. So um, we'll be watching it closely. I think it's a very interesting space. The entire connected connect fitness space is going to be quite intriguing over the next couple of years. Yeah, one interesting point that came out, and it was an article I read just before we came on this call, Emmett, was that Under Armour, the other big kind of sports apparel um, 
company in our shortlist, they're actually reportedly seeking a buyer for the My Fitness Pal app, um, which they bought back in, in 2015 for, for a lot of money. Um, could this be kind of a warning sign for the likes of Lululemon and uh, Mirror? You know, Lululemon is also a sports apparel company, kind of making their first big purchase into the tech world as such. Um, is there is there a chance for, as Peter Lynch called it, diversification here? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that if you look at Under Armour paid circa the same amount of money for my fitness pal app as Lululemon is paying for Mirror, but the uh, my fitness pal app is is it's I wouldn't like to call it a simple piece of tech, but certainly it's not. It doesn't have the complexities and the revenue generating capability that Mirror has. You know, it was. It never felt like a great integration. Under Armour bought my Fitness Pal. You could see their logo appear on the app. They didn't improve the UI uh, user interface. And as we know very, very well, the upkeep and improvement of a mobile app requires a big team, a lot of thinking, a lot of customer data, a lot of listening, a lot of feedback. And they didn't do that. They didn't invest in the MyFitnessPal app. Their premium offering in that app was not all that exciting. You can use MyFitnessPal app for the rest of your life free of charge and get the value that you really need from it. Um, So I think I wouldn't confuse them or I wouldn't say that one kind of speaks to the other. I think with the new CEO at Under Armour tidying up the shop and trying to divest non-core assets is just a typical maneuver. And it just unfortunately, my fitness pal app just didn't really fit right. They didn't improve it. It just the new competitors arrived. There's there's probably a dozen apps where you can track what you're eating very well and 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 all the other things that go with it. So it just drifted. Whereas I think the mirror with its upfront capital cost, its monthly subscription plan and the move towards home fitness as we've just discussed is is a different and altogether different ballgame. Okay, so let's move on to the other acquisition I mentioned then. And this was, of course, Uber buying the food delivery company Postmates in an all-stock deal worth uh, $2.65 billion. Um, At the time, Uber said that Postmates is highly complementary to its Uber Eats business um, and said that the two services have differing geographic and demographic focuses, um, so there won't be much overlap there. Rory, you've been very critical of food delivery industry in the past in this podcast. What are your thoughts on this deal? Uh, yeah, I mean, like the well, I just don't like the food delivery business in general. <laughs> this, this is the main thing, whether it's the, from a business point of view or not. The announcement of this deal, which was um, a much smaller deal than they'd been looking at just over a month ago, when they were kind of propositioning um, uh, Grubhub to do a similar all stock deal, they couldn't at the time uh, come together on a price they claimed, and and uh, Grubhub ended up uh, being acquired by. A European company called Just Eat, uh, that was for $7.3 billion. I assume what actually happened there, or my, my presumption is that the lawyers got involved and said there's absolutely no way anyone's going to allow you to buy Grubhub yeah. <laughs> uh, because it'll be a total antitrust disaster. So I'd say they pulled out of that deal and have bought the smaller Postmates now. Um, the acquisition will move Uber Eats into kind of number two space in the food delivery uh market in the US, they'll command about 30% market share post-acquisition growth, or DoorDash is the number one at the moment with about 45%. Um, I find this, I mean, in some ways this is like a deal that just had to happen at some point. There's going to be consolidation in this space because every single one of them have realized that you can't, you're not going to make a profit when you're all competing with each other on pricing. Um, yeah. 
just eat obviously saw that with 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 uh god i keep getting them all confused now the names are so similar grubhub <laughs> <laughs> just eat saw it with grubhub uber saw it with um postmates uh but you know there's an awful lot and obviously uber's main business the ride hailing business is just generated basically zero revenue over the last quarter um, so they needed something they needed a flywheel in the business and and there is a sense that perhaps uber could build this kind of um, mochi ecosystem where once you have an uber account you have so many options in terms of getting food delivered getting groceries delivered getting someone to pick you up getting you know i think they i think i heard today they've launched a boat on the english thames that'll take you places along the along the river so um i'm never they're never short of pr opportunities i'll tell I'll give yeah. them that much uh, what I would like, one of the things I'd say is that, you know, it's, they're playing pretty fast and loose with a lot of factors here. California has passed a bill that says they're going to require them to treat delivery drivers like employees. And um, that would really, really dent this entire business. Um, other states could easily follow suit. Now, there is a, there is a uh, challenge to that uh, coming up shortly, which Postmates and Uber are all very much behind. But what I would say is that, you know, given what just happened with coronavirus and seeing the impact that it's had, particularly on gig economy workers, I feel like legislators are going to really crack down on this kind of behavior because mm. no one's going to let a company pay their CEO multi-million dollar uh, fees and and try and sell shares to investors while also telling the coming to the government at any time of crisis saying you need to basically pay all our employees uh, their wages because we won't. Um, so, you know, the company lost $3 billion last quarter. I assume they're going to lose more now that they've got Postmates on board, another unprofitable company. At some point, this will probably end up being accretive to the business, but I still just would not invest in this company yet. They're very much still a vision rather than a business. Yeah, it, it kind of struck me. You mentioned the Just Eat and Grubhub deal there too, that the, the path the food delivery industry seems to be going down is just complete consolidation and kind of land grab until there's probably one or two big players left. Is, is that the way you see it? Yeah, well, Uber learned this lesson a long time ago. They had nearly total market dominance in the United States and then 2017 happened where there was a series of blunders pretty much every, every week. Something else came out about the company and their rival, which at one point, you know, basically tried to sell themselves to them because they were... Uh, never going to make it themselves, suddenly got an upsurge in users and now you have Uber and Lyft, the two big companies in the US. They learned the yeah. lesson a long time ago that this doesn't work. You can't, you can't have uh, two companies competing over pricing because what you're trying to do is you're trying to satisfy two stakeholders who want totally different things. On the one side, you're trying to get drivers to come onto your platform. Um, and drivers want to be paid as much as as much as they can be. And on the other side, you're trying to get customers onto your platform, and customers want to pay as little as they as they can. So yeah. you know, Uber so, sold Uber and a lot of other kind of gig economy companies sold us all a, a lie uh, about ten years ago that we'd all be able to afford having a personal driver uh, twenty four hours a day who would deliver us food whenever we wanted from whatever restaurant we wanted, and this would all come at a very, very low price. And it's just, that's, that's not going to work. That doesn't happen. People yeah. need people. There are, there are people who are going to be shafted somewhere down the line. And at the moment it's the employees and at, in the food delivery business, the restaurants who absolutely hate food delivery and wish it would go away because it totally destroys their margins. Um, and so, yeah, it's, we're, we're, there's going to be a constant toing and froing between all the various stakeholders. And at some point people are going to have to realize that you, you're not going to get all this 
stuff for free essentially or for for much less than you, you would expect or the company is going to end up just realizing that they're never going to become profitable doing this very interesting uh we'll keep an eye on that so um let's move on to jargon busters but let's take a quick look first at some of the other things happening in the my wall street app at the moment earlier this week we published july's stock of the month report this month's company is a pretty recent addition to the my wall street shortlist that has a niche position in the world of social networking that's dominated by the likes of facebook and twitter don't forget that my wall street members will also be able to listen to the exclusive stock of the month podcast that's due to go live in the app on monday july 13th in this you can listen to rory and as we discuss the stock of the month selection in more detail and figure out exactly what makes this company such a great investment. Remember, if you're not already a member of the My Wall Street community, you can get a free trial of the service right now by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. So, Jargon Busters, uh, Emmett, the first question I'm going to throw over to you, and it comes from a longtime listener in New York, Will Wade, who I believe you met before. Um, Will wrote in asking us about the LTSC or the long-term stock exchange. Um, can you kind of explain what it is and kind of give some of your thoughts on it? Yeah, so the long-term stock exchange was founded by a guy called Eric Reese, who uh, wrote a book and famously wrote a book in 2011, which is occasionally referred to as the Startup Bible, and it's called The Lean Startup. And this book introduced the masses to concepts like product market fit and minimal viable product and the pivot. And and in, in writing the book, I guess, Riese established himself as the expert in how to run a startup. And I, at the time, every company, I swear, every company read it uh, in startup mode. So he moved on and um, was is the founder of the Long-Term Stock Exchange. So when the LTSE launches, it will be the 14th US exchanged, exchange registered for trading securities or stocks, but it's only the third active exchange that's approved for both trading and listing of public companies. So it's kind of move over New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, someone else is joining you. So it means yeah. that instead of IPOing on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, companies will now have the option of listing shares, which is going public, on the LTSE. And the LTSE has raised about $70 million, really from the who's who of Silicon Valley's VCs, Andrew Sinhauritz, the Collaborative Fund, like Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, LinkedIn's co-founder Reid Hoffman. I mean, it has the best, or at least the most credible backers. Um, now, according to the internet, the median, median time to IPO is now about seven years. And it was about three years in 2010. So the number of companies filing for IPO has plunged from 500 or 600 a year through the 1990s to around one or 200 a year over the past decades. So something is slowing the system down. So companies that go public on the long-term stock exchange will commit to measuring success in years and decades, which yeah. is uh, aligns everybody concerned with long-term performance, which we as a company, My Wall Street, very, very, very much bases everything we do on that kind of simple premise. And and it will give boards explicit oversight of long-term strategy and engaging in a long-term way with shareholders. So the challenge that the LTSE has is, you know, how do investors 
get incentivized for holding for the long term. And they might, one of the things I, I read is that they might offer a progressive dividend or create a different class of shares. Um, are like time time phased tenure of voting. So there's a lot of different ways you can incentivize someone to hold your shares for the long term. Um, and it's the LTSE's job to bring that to the masses. And that's really what they they stand for. Um, and just to before I, I conclude on the point, like exchanges make money through trading fees, through listing fees, and generally yeah. fees for data. And a New York Stock Exchange is, is a data company that does that does trading and listing, but it's and, and data, so they make money from trading, listing, and data. Um, in 2018, Nasdaq's net revenues were $2.5 billion. New York Stock Exchanges were about double that. Now, the initial listing cost on a New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ can start around 50K and run into hundreds of thousands, depending on a company size. Um, and then you pay an annual fee to maintain your listing. So as of January, just gone, the long-term stock exchange published its proposed listing fees, which started at 150 grand for listing and a minimum 150k annual fee so they're not competing on price they're they're kind of pricing alongside the other two giant exchanges and in fact the the, the long-term stock exchange is one i know reasonably well because i spoke to the chief commercial officer there a couple of years ago martin alvarez there was his name as far as i recall he was their head of listings i was speaking to him in my capacity as ceo of my wall street and it's you know it's a great ambition it hasn't delivered yet, but if the long-term stock exchange delivers, it by right or in theory should have a list of companies that we as investors should be most interested in because we want to invest in businesses where founders and management team and, and, and the entire organization is trying to create long-term enduring wealth for investors. Okay, cool. Um, the next question we got in comes from Craig, um, and he asked, so one of the big things here at my Wall Street we look for in a potential investment is insider ownership. And I suppose in particular, insider owners actually buying shares, it's usually seen as a good sign of a good investment. Um, Craig was wondering about, should we be worried about insiders selling shares? Emmett, I'll throw that to you again. Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that insider buying and selling should never be confused with illegal insider trading, yeah. which is the buying or selling of a, of a stock by someone uh, who has material information about that stock, someone who works for the business. Um, so like the times and the conditions when insiders can buy and sell a stock and on what information activity that activity is based is heavily regulated and policed. And if somebody, something fishy goes down, the person concerned will be hit with penalties. And the big example of that, and we're still talking about the illegal side, was Martha Stewart insider trading case in 2001, which I think is the highest profile example where I can recall where somebody uh, made a trade based on something they knew an insider activity. And that's a story unto itself. But yeah. getting back to the question, insider trading in its purest form refers to the stock transactions of the officers directors and large shareholders of a firm, 
and the above board stock trading. And, and many investors believe that corporate insiders in, informed about their firm's prospects, buy and sell their shares at favorable times, you know, reaping benefits. So the best study that I've read on insider trading was documented in a book by, oh, uh, I hope I get the pronunciation right. It's always been a tough one for me. It's H. Nejat Sehun. And it's a book called, it's a book called Investment Intelligence from Insider Trading. And it's, it's okay. I mean, the, the, the outcome of the book is superb. It's not a riveting read. And based on, on Nejat's insights, he basically took a 21-year study of what we can glean from insider activity. It was a really exhaustive set of data. He looked at over 1 million transactions. And he shows that, he shows in the book how investors can use insider information to their advantage. And, and I guess the exact summary is that buys, insider buys, especially by the CEO, are the most information-laden things we can deduce you know, from, but insider sales is, it, it's very difficult to separate the signal from the noise, as they say. So yeah. if you see a whole pile of insider sell shares, you can't necessarily deduce that bad things are about to happen. You can, you could, you could reasonably deduce that these people wanted to get cash into their bank account, but that's just being alive. And very often when you found a business and you work extremely hard for years and decades, to get it to a place where it's floated, the first opportunity you have to crystallize, to take cash out of this business that you've worked so hard for is by selling shares. So yeah. um, we all we all need money to do the things we want to do. And that's just is what we're seeing when there's an insider sell. So unfortunately, there's no absolute answer for an insider buy. Yes, there's things you can look at that are bullish, but we can't necessarily presume that insider sells are bearish. So Maybe we prefer not to see them. But when I see an insider selling their shares, I don't take it as a negative. I, I at best, maybe an amber traffic light, but are neutral. Like, I just don't really concern myself with it too much because maybe so I want to buy an island or a boat or something. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's it's not necessarily a bad sign, but it's definitely something worth, worth noting, I suppose. Yeah, that's about it. I mean, it's just—it's almost a no, a, a zero signal. I almost feel like okay. nor maybe you can, you know. But looking at a million transactions from insiders over twenty-one year period, there was nothing you could conclude from an insider sell. So that's okay. data enough to say ignore. Okay, perfect. Uh, last question then, Rory, I'm going to throw it over to you. And we got a few questions in through my Wall Street about the recent separation between the Match Group, the owners of uh, popular apps like Tinder and the like, and its parent company, IAC. Can you just shed a little bit of light on what happened there? Yeah, well, IAC, or Interactive Core, um, to give its full name, is a holding company. Um, that's what they do. They, they own... Um, interests in very various businesses i think they have at least over 100 brands at the moment they actually started funnily enough out of the home shopping network uh the, the home shopping network created okay. a company called silver king broadcast which went around buying up local tv stations in order to kind of spread the the home shopping network's reach around america in the in the 2000s though they they changed their name and they divested a lot of their tv assets and, re and really started buying up a lot of um internet companies so over the years they've had various interests in companies like TripAdvisor. they owned expedia for a while they owned ticketmaster for a while uh, lending tree and um, vimeo is another company that they that they own what they typically do is that they basically 
take a bunch of assets from a company, maybe combine them with other assets that they own, and then try and kind of put that company out into the world in terms of an IPO. Um, they match was one of the companies that they that they owned a share in, and then you know they saw the the promise in online dating and essentially went out and, and bought up pretty much every online dating company they could, and created this kind of separate segment of their business called the Match Group segment. And a couple of years ago, as we know, they spun off that company into the into the world of um, public share ownership, but they maintained a lot the a majority share in it, and this is simply the the winding up of that entire process. We're now shareholders in IAC are being rewarded with a distribution of the shares so now they're just the the companies are separated essentially it means that match is now a fully independent company in a sense you know they still have obviously shareholders from IAC still own shares in the company but they've got a lot more freedom to kind of maneuver in terms of making their own acquisitions or uh, you know uh, issuing their own debts and that kind of thing without having to worry about kind of daddy signing off on the final <laughs> yeah. uh, on the final line so that's it, it really matters very little to, to shareholders of the match group great so that's a jargon buster so let's move on to the elevator pitch then just before we finish today's episode so for this week's elevator pitch i asked both of you to think about your ideal podcast guest so if you were in charge and you, you could get your address book out. Who would be the person you'd ring to feature on this podcast? You never know, they might be listening and, and decide to come on. <laughs> uh, Rory, I'll stay with you. Who who would you pitch as your ideal podcast guest? I didn't I didn't know about the, the address book. <laughs> this person is certainly not in my address book. Uh, no, no. I was, well, thinking, like, yeah. um, I I was being a bit sarcastic. <laughs> there's so many people out there at the moment who are great in terms of people that you can follow in terms of investing and you know so many people you'd love to talk to um but as i was thinking about it you know an awful lot of people are kind of accessible there's so many great investors you can just connect with on twitter or we'll do interviews with other shows uh, other podcasts that you can listen to it's it's there's so many great people to access i mean so then i kind of thought who's the probably least accessible um, and that would be Charlie Munger. I think would be okay. an incredible person to well to meet in general, or or especially to talk to him and get to ask uh, questions off for an, any sort of extended period of time. A guy who's just full of incredible wisdom about all topics, and um, definitely gives you a kind of much more broad-minded view of the world. And someone I'd uh, greatly admire in terms of investing as well. Yeah, I think at the recent Berkshire Hathaway AGM, Warren Buffett mentioned that Munger had started using Zoom. So you never know, Rory. <laughs> These podcasts have been recorded on Zoom. I really would love to see that video. You know, they they always have a video of someone trying to set it up originally. Yeah. I'd love to see Charlie Munger's set up Zoom video. <laughs> Emmett, who would you uh, who would you like as a podcast guest on this? Yeah, so my answer is a left field answer, James, and not as aligned with our audience as Rory's, but I it's e an easy one for me. I would go with Dr. Brian May, who is the founding member of the band Queen and is a guitarist and he's a physicist and he's uh, an astronomer and he is the one person who I don't know personally who's still alive and who has had the greatest positive impact on my life and when you listen to Brian May speak he's extremely intelligent and I know we would uh, uncover some great investments from chatting with him but apart from anything I'd fulfill my life's ambition to talk to uh, the lead guitarist of Queen so you know if we're going to open our, our magic roller decks and ring anyone it's Brian May for me. 
good answer. I like that one. He's a he's a big um, man for trying to save the Badgers, isn't he? In England. He is very much so, yeah. In fact, all the things that Brian May stands for and all the things that he talks about and is an expert in are aligned with things that I have a passion for. So, That's your um, in. Why don't you just get on board with the Badger uh, saving? If you could like dedicate yeah. the rest of your life to Badger saving, I bet you'd be in at some point. <laughs> That's a good idea. I might just do that. <laughs> we might rename the uh, the podcast <laughs> Badger Club, Badger Talk, Badger Watch. <laughs> uh, so, so that that's it from this week's Badger Watch. Um, don't forget about all the great news. <laughs> don't forget about all the great news stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> really threw me. Uh, <laughs> take a drink of water. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, please make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club 2. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.